0: Well, if you would this morning, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, we're in the last weeks. In fact, we've only got about four more weeks in our series. We've been in this series for almost a year. And I want to I simply say this, and I may repeat it again. Every study within churches says that we should not spend a lot of time in long series that you lose your attention span, but I want you to know something. There's something special that happens when God's people open the word of God, amen? And the Holy Spirit comes and he speaks to us, and I don't know about you, but this Gospel of John study has revolutionized my uh, understanding of Jesus afresh and anew, and I'm so very thankful for a church that lifts high the word of God and longs for the word of God to be taught verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, word by word. And we find ourselves in John chapter 19. Jesus has been betrayed by Judas in the garden, the Roman soldiers and the chief religious leaders of the day have uh, come and arrested Jesus. Jesus has now experienced three trials up to this point in John chapter 19. He has had a questioning in the house of Annas, a religious leader of the day. He has then been taken to the house of Caiaphas, the religious uh, chief priest of the day. Uh, During both of those, no witnesses or formal charges are given. And Jesus has now moved from the religious court to the civil court enter Pontius Pilate the governor the Roman governor of all of Judea the Jews hate Pontius Pilate they despise him which will be important to render and recognize here in a couple moments but they need Rome they need the Roman Empire because they want to kill Jesus they've wanted to kill Jesus since Jesus came on the scene and they now need Rome to be complicit in their ghastly act of trying to execute the king of kings and the lord of lords. Pilate talks with Jesus. He finds no fault in Jesus and he thinks he's got the answer and at the end of chapter 18, he goes to the Jewish people and he says, listen, I'll give you back Jesus. It's the time of the Passover, that's what we do. I will give you Jesus, and they yell, no, we want the terrorists, the insurrectionist, the robber, Barabbas, and they choose once again to reject Jesus and choose another. We'll see that in the text this morning. And what we come to this morning is that Pilate does the unthinkable. He flogs Jesus. And what we are going to see in this text is a sad, sad moment. Any Christ follower should be taken aback by what is going to be described here by Jesus' best friend, the apostle John. As I looked at this passage I long wondered how, how would I address this passage and I want you to know I, I do a lot of back and forth. You should see the sheets of paper that I have starting going okay I'm going to go in this direction and then scrapping that and going a different and it wasn't until what happens each week is I will from time to time throughout my week just read the English version that's right before you of the text over and over and over again. And sometimes in the first reading of it, it's crystal clear. It did not come crystal clear to me until about Wednesday. And I started getting nervous around Wednesday, to be quite honest with you. And I sat down and I read the text again. And all of a sudden, even though I had read it at least a dozen times prior to that, what I saw that 13th or 14th time in reading it became crystal clear. And that's what I want to share with you today. What I want to focus in on these verses before us are the words of Pilate. Now, we did that last week. What is truth? And I want to come back and I want to listen to what Pilate has to say because what he says, I think, has great bearing on our life, but I want you to understand this. While we will focus in on the words of Pilate, Jesus is the centerpiece of this passage, as he is every passage of scripture. But it's what Pilate says about Jesus and the implications that it has for us today that I think is so crucial for us to answer. I want you to notice Pilate says two things. He says a lot, but two things that John seems to point out are a contrast, and it creates this juxtaposition between these two competing thoughts. Notice in verse five, Pilate says the first thing. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, you might want to underline this, behold the man, behold the man the man. Now, what Pilate is doing here is he's doing what he always does, and that is when he's about to condemn a man, he presents the man. This is the due process. He presents the man, and he utters the crime that this man has committed. So he would say, here, behold, Tim bad preacher, right? Okay? This is what he would present, the crime that deserves the punishment. He says, Behold the man to the crowd. Listen to me very, very carefully this morning. Many in this world, and maybe even some in this place, when they see Jesus, they behold the man. That is, they see Jesus flesh and blood, they see Jesus in his humanity, and they say, He's like me. And they're right, He was like us. But He's nothing more than that. And so many in that crowd that day said, here's another uh, criminal that Rome is going to execute. Been there, done that. Many in the crowd would go home, what would you do today, dear? I saw another execution taking place, another rabble rouser. And they moved on with their day. For many, in fact, most in this world, will behold Jesus and they will behold the man. But I want you to go down and notice in verse 14, Jesus gets presented again. And as he's presented the second time, notice what Pilate says. He said to the crowd, the Jews, Behold your king. Notice the possessiveness there. Not behold a king, not even behold the king, but behold your king. This is your guy, this is your king, this is the one that you should be worshiping and adoring, of which they say no. We have only one king and that is Caesar. Here is the great question. When you look at Jesus this morning, do you see him simply as a man or do you see him as your king? That determination will send you in one of two very, very different directions. On very, two very different trajectories. If Jesus is simply a man, then he was a good man, he was a great man, he could have been any kind of man, but we live, we move on, he dies, oh so sad. But if Jesus is our king, then my goodness, look at what our king did. If Jesus is our king, look at his love. Look at his mercy. Look at his grace. Look at his forgiveness. Look at the depths of which he went for us so that we might have life. Do You see the difference? If Jesus is simply a man, we move on with our day. If Jesus is our king, we stop, and we are sobered by the thought, sobered by the cost, and it compels us to live all together differently. So, this morning, I'm in a, group of, uh, in a room with a group of people who just announced, Jesus, you are the anthem of my heart. Jesus, you are the anthem of my soul. I'm overwhelmed by all you are. Oh, how I love you. So I'm going to believe that the vast majority of us, because you sang it out like you meant it, say Jesus is the king. So then, therefore, what do we do with a passage of scripture like this? That our king is humiliated and humbled and harassed and beat up and knocked down. What are we to make of a passage like this? This morning, I want you to see what it means to behold Jesus as your king. Four things. Write these down, whether you're here or watching online. Four things that involve our beholding of Jesus as king. Number one, it begins by us, first of all, staying alert, Staying alert, and here's why. Sin causes us to do atrocious things. The text begins this way. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. That is, they punched him. Pilate went again and said to them, see, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to him, behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to him, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. If you write in your Bibles, which I think is okay to do, you may want to put at the top of this heading the beatings and beratings of Jesus. Jesus is beaten physically, and he's berated. That is, people speak ill of Jesus. They mock him, they scorn him with their words. If there was ever uh, a picture of the phrase adding insult to injury, this text is it. And so we are told, notice in the text, that Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Now, in our vernacular, it doesn't make any earthly sense to us. What does it mean? If you know definitions well, you know flogging means to whip somebody. But that word doesn't even help us because this idea of flogging back in the days of the first century meant a quite different things. You see, the Romans were professionals at exacting judgment. They made it a part of their uh, judicial system to show the world what happens when you break the law. Their justice was swift, it was severe, it was public, and it sent a message that if you think you can do wrong and get away with it, you've got another thing coming. So the Romans knew how to inflict punishment. And so floggings or scourgings came under three things. And the Romans had three words for them. The first word uh, that was given for flogging was the most minor of floggings. It, It was the word fustigatio, fustigatio. And fustigatio was given to misdemeanors and petty crimes. And what the Romans would do is they would say, listen, we don't want you to do those things again. And so we are going to teach you not to do them again by beating you up. And so they would beat probably with clubs or with a whip and they would show you, don't ever break the law again. Now, fustigatio meant they left you with bruises, okay? So let's just be honest. Bruises are not fun to get. Nobody ever, when they get hit and have a bruise coming their way, it's like, man, that was a lot of fun. It's painful and it leaves a reminder that for a few short days, people see the bruise and say, what happened to you? What, 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 who hit you? What took place? It's a reminder, a short-term reminder of what transpired. Fustigatio was there to serve you, to remind you in the moment, I should probably not do that again. It left bruises. The second one was for moderate crimes, and that word was flagelletio. Flagelletio was intended to be more severe. It was to harm but not kill. And what the Romans wanted to do is they wanted you to have a long-term reminder that you should never do what you did, and you're you're going to remember it for a long time. And so fustigatio meant we're gonna leave you with bruises. Now remember, bruises come and go, a matter of a couple of weeks, they're gone, right? None of us probably remember our bruises, right? But flagigatio that leaves scars. Probably one of the most quintessential pictures, sad pictures in American history uh, that would spawn the abolition movement for the abolition of slavery was this picture. This is flagigatio. And this is the scars. The guy can never hide it. He'll always be reminded of the beating that he took place. It will be with him forever. Let's face it, we forget bruises. We don't forget scars. I have some scars on my body, especially within my, my hand and my arms that I remember where I was at, what happened when that transpired. That's what the Romans wanted you to do. They wanted those scars to say, you know what, I'm gonna think twice about doing that crime. Neither of these are what Jesus experienced. We are told through history that Jesus experienced the worst of scourgings and of floggings. The Romans called this to too many hard atios there. Verberatio. it was the worst. It was the one that would leave most criminals dead. This would involve the victim being stripped naked. It would involve the victim then putting his arms around a post. They would tighten the arms of the individual as tight as possible. And if you're wondering why, notice when I'm like this, my back isn't very taut, but as I do this, the skin on my back is taut, which would help it when it's being whipped in a negative way, by the way. Then, two individuals whose job and profession as executioners, their job, they were professionals at this, their job was to take a whip and one, alternating the other, would whip the individual. Now, in the Roman world, 40 lashes was for capital offenses they would be gracious and merciful, and they would take away one of the lashes so it was 39 lashes. But here's the problem. We get in our mind uh, Indiana Jones whip. And that's not the kind of whip that was used. Yes, it was probably made of leather, but Romans had invented what is called the cat of nine tails. And what it was, and the best way to explain it would be this. The whip was my arm, And instead of five fingers, it would have nine fingers to it. And at the end of each of the fingers, there would be attached to the end rock that would bludgeon you when you got hit with it, jagged glass and bone of animals, and anything sharp. And the reason why is as the executioner would swing the whip, the cat of nine tails would serve to embed into the skin of the victim, and if that wasn't bad enough, being impaled by these things, then the executioner would swing back the whip and would tear the skin of the victim. This would bloody them. This would be done. Now listen, 39 times you're like, okay, It probably happened real fast. Wham, 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 39 times and we're done. Uh, Historians say that this would take over an hour to do. And John seems to paint that picture because notice in the middle, they would do it. They would whip the individual, then rip back. They would stop. And that's when the mocking would take place. And then someone would come up and punch Jesus into the face and, and mock him. And, and think about it. If this is like a 10-minute thing, they don't have time to whittle together the crown of thorns, which they place on his head, which embeds into his skull. And they wouldn't have had time to go find a purple robe to put around him. This is a long, flogging now this flogging was so bad so violent that Eusebius, who was a religious leader of about a century after jesus saw a flogging that like jesus had had and this is what he says For they say that the bystanders were struck with amazement when they saw them lacerated with scourges even to the innermost veins and arteries so that the inward parts of the body, both their bowels and their members, were exposed to view. So here he is, he's seeing it, and he's saying everyone who watched it, they had to turn away because it was so bad because what happened was is the flogging opened up the back so you would see the organs. Now, the reason why they did this was twofold. You may want to write this down. Number one, what the Romans did was they did this to whip out a confession. To whip out a confession. And that's going to be important here in a moment. They want to whip out a confession. And here's why they were brutal in their punishment, but they were smart. You see, if as they are brutalizing the victim, the victim at some point yells, I did it! Okay, I did it. Whatever you've said that I've done, I've done it, and they're confessing it. Listen, I want you to think of the worst thing you've ever done, the thing that nobody else knows about, the thing that you say I'm going to the grave with, and I want you to endure for an hour the ripping open of your back, and at some point I'm going to tell you something. We're going to come clean, right? And so what that did is it validated the Romans, hey, we did this, but it was necessary, do you see? He's a sinful man, he's a criminal, we had to do it. We are being just, just in our punishment. It was to whip out a confession. Number two, it was to weaken the criminal for crucifixion. So one of the things that we read in secular history is that the Romans liked crucifixion because it was public, it set a tone, don't mess with the Romans, don't mess with your government. But what they didn't like is they were refined people and they did not, it sounds funny, they did not like people hanging on crosses for too long. It was a spectacle that was supposed to be short-lived. And so if they could beat a person to the inch of their life and then execute them, the time of the crucifixion should be relatively short. This is really important. When Jesus goes to the cross, if you look at what, what the Gospel writers say, Jesus dies very quickly. It isn't because Jesus is half the man that the two other guys on the side of him were. It was that they had beaten Jesus so badly that he was ready to die already. And that crucifixion was just simply the icing on the cake. Now, what does all this mean? Why do I share all of this with you? Is it just to speak very openly and Graphically about a horrific wrong. I want you to know this. Yes, the whipping of Jesus exposed the inside of Jesus, but I want you to see this this morning. The whipping and flogging of Jesus does more than expose the inside of Jesus. Listen, it exposes the inside of you and me. Because here's the thing these were the religious leaders of the day that were there watching. These were, this was a crowd. This wasn't just a bunch of heartless individuals. This was a group of people who said they loved God. This is a group of people who had, had followed Jesus at some time or another and saw the miracles and saw that he had fed the 5,000 and ministered to people and uh, took away demons from people and, and gave great sermons about things, all of these different things. And what do we do with this kind, benevolent man? Notice, what does Pilate say twice? I find no fault in him. So you rip open his back? You, you, you beat him to a bloody pulp? That's what we do to innocent people? And the answer is yes. That's what sinful men and women do. That's why Jeremiah says that the heart of sinful man is deceitfully sick, who can understand it? I don't understand it, and the reason why is because I'm a sinner. And just like these individuals, we can look and and say, wow, they really messed up, and yet, don't we think about the ills that we do? When we look at our evil hearts, our depraved hearts, the hearts that cause us to lie and cheat, to steal, to break trust, to abuse and maim, to kill and murder, to speak death to others around us, to wish and think death upon others, and sometimes to even allow that go to our hands and our feet, where we are swift to shed innocent blood. Romans chapter one says that we invent ways of doing evil. This is what God says of us in our sinful place. We are downright dirty, rotten, filthy scoundrels of creatures. And if you think that you would have been there and said something different, then your eyes are far too haughty because there's not a single person in this place who is saying, stop what's going on. In fact, they say, double down, crucify him, crucify him. And if it weren't for the grace of almighty God present in our lives, you and I would be there as well. So the first lesson this morning, it's the longest lesson of the day, stay alert because sin will cause you to do atrocious things. And so that sin that you are playing around with right now, that you think is just between you and yourself, that sin that you think you can get away with, is going to feed itself and grow itself into be the atrocious thing you never wanted it to be. Stay alert. Number two. Number two, we need to stay calm, and we need to stay calm, knowing that God is in control. After Jesus is beaten and bloodied, Pilate brings him back out, and notice he brings him out in verse 9. Pilate enters his headquarters again and says to Jesus, where are you from? And Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You have no authority over me at all unless it's been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. This is hilariously stupid. Pilate has a conversation with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and he says, Listen, don't you know who I am? I'm the boss. One of the most wisest words that my dad ever shared with me is this, if you have to tell people you're the boss, you're not the boss. Some of you are like, I need to stop calling myself the boss. (laughs) Pilate says he's the boss and he's not the boss. Jesus even points out that fact when he says "The one who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. He's talking about Caiaphas, the high priest. He's saying this, Pilate, you're a puppet and the master of puppets is Caiaphas, the guy that's less than you. He's running this whole show and you have the audacity to tell me that you're in charge. And Jesus says you're not in charge. Jesus said last time when he was with Pilate that if I really wanted to. I could bring a myriad of angels to my aid at a moment's notice. I am in charge, Jesus says. And the reason why you can't see it is my kingdom is not of this world. Now, we need to recognize that Pilate's going through a bit of a confliction here. And there are things both in the John passage and in the other Gospels that help us to recognize some of this conflict. First of all, Pilate's wife in another Gospel is said to have had a dream and she tells Pilate, don't touch this matter. This is way bigger than you. Stay away from it. Steer clear of it. So that's mulling around in Pilate's head. And then... Jesus doesn't confess anything during the flogging. Wait a minute, wasn't one of the reasons for the flogging that it would whip out a confession? And so for an hour, Pilate watches this take place, and at some point, usually at the beginning of it, they start confessing everything. And now he has watched Jesus take a beating and nothing, the prophet Isaiah says, that he will be silent like a lamb is before his shears. He doesn't say a thing. And Pilate's like, wait a minute. If we beat him to an inch of his life, if he had anything to confess, he would have, but because he's the perfect lamb of God, he's got nothing to confess, so he doesn't say anything, that's a problem. And then number three, Everybody keeps talking about this guy as the son of God. And Pilate has heard that this guy's kingdom is not of this world, and so he asks the question, where do you come from? Who are you? It is in that moment that we need to recognize that Pilate is so utterly out of control, it's not funny. But notice the text seems to tell us that Jesus is out of control. Notice verse one, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Doesn't sound like Jesus is in control, sounds like Pilate's in control. Then notice the last verse. So they delivered Jesus over to the Romans to be crucified. People are leading Jesus around. Jesus is out of control, someone else is in control. But Jesus says in the middle of this passage, No authority has been given to you except what's given from above. What Jesus is saying there is even in the moment where the world would say, I am out of control, I am totally in control. This is what Peter said on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two. He said this, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man, Jesus, was handed over to you, notice, by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. Jesus says this is all according to plan. Pilate, you're not in control here. My heavenly Father is in control and I am doing the will of him and I know the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. And so you say, well, as a Christian, what does that mean for you? If in Jesus' darkest hour, if where it seems that Jesus was most, his world was most out of control, that God is in control, then how much more is he in control with the things that plague us today? How much more solace can we take knowing that we have a God who is always in control? And that's why it says what what man intended for harm, God intends for good. That God works all things out for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. When it seems at its worst, most chaotic, Jesus affirms this truth that some of us need to hear this morning, that when it's most chaotic, God is most in control. So stay calm and stay alert. Number three, stay true, stay true. You want to behold Jesus as your king? Stay true or risk turning to another. From then, verse 12, from then Pilate sought to release him, but Jesus cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat, a place called the stone pavement, in the Aramaic called Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out. Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no other king but Caesar. So he delivered him, that is Jesus, over to them, that is the religious leaders, to be crucified. If we are going to behold Jesus as our king, there will be moments, there will be times and spaces in our lives where we will risk giving him up. Jesus is presented as the king, their king, and they reject him. And notice, the reason why they reject him is they have a greater king in their mind. You see, Jesus was right on the Sermon on the Mount when he says, "You can't have two masters. You'll love, you'll love one and you'll hate the other. And so here Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one, the king of the Jews, has come. He's performed signs and wonders. He's done everything that God said he was going to do. Jesus is presented, by the way, John says, the day that he's presented. It is the preparation of the Passover. What happens on the day of the preparation of the Passover? That's where Israelite families would select their lamb have it crucified on the next day, the day of Passover, where they would celebrate Passover that Saturday. The day that Jesus, I'm sorry, the day that Jewish families are picking their lamb to be sacrificed as an offering to God is the day they rejected Jesus as the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. They say, we don't want him. Listen to this. The chief priests say and this is really important. The chief priests say, he's not our king. You would have thought that they would say, we have no king, but I want you to know this truth. You always have a king. You always have a master. And notice, they know that, and they say, listen, we have no other king except Caesar. By the way, 30 years from this moment, that Caesar, their king, is going to come in and mercilessly kill 1.5 million Israelis in the captivity and destruction of Jerusalem. So they got their king. Not very benevolent, not very kind, but they have their king. And some of us, listen to me, this is so important. Some of us are rejecting Jesus to serve another king. And that king is another person. That king is a possession. That that king is a position of prestige or power. And Jesus is standing right before you right now. And you're saying, I got no other king. That's not my king. My king is that person. My king is that thing. My king is that opportunity. My king is money. My king, and you put in the thing, it's sex, it's drugs, it's alcohol. My king is popularity. You put it in there. That's who I serve. That's who I worship. And just like the Caesars of Rome, that sinful pursuit, listen to me, will one day come, and it will destroy every part of your life it will destroy you. That king that you've given allegiance to, that king that you have given space to, that king that you've given time and energy to, that king you gave oxygen to, that king one day, like the kings of Rome, will come into your Jerusalem and destroy it where one rock will not be set on top of another. And some have experienced the king of sinful decisions come and wreak havoc in your life. So what does John say? Jesus is right before you. Choose Jesus as king. Choose Jesus as Lord. And to do that, we have to stay alert. To do that, we have to stay calm. To do that, we have to stay true. But then the people will say, why would you stay true and stay calm when your Jesus is being beaten up and bloodied? And here's the answer. It's the shortest point I will ever preach in this pulpit because Christians stay tuned because Jesus triumphs in the end and that's why we believe it and that's why we affirm it and that's why we pray to this king and we sing praises to this king and we order our life around this king and that's why we choose no other king to go before us because Jesus the one who went and did all of this for us that we might live who went to the cross and died a sinner's death for you and me will one day rise and he will be uh, placed in the heavenly realms at the right hand of the father and on that Easter Sunday just a matter of three days from this moment Jesus will be lifted high and I'm telling you one day one day every man woman and child that the name of Jesus King Jesus will bow the knee and will confess with their tongue that Jesus is Lord so in the meanwhile stay alert stay calm and stay true And yes, stay tuned.